So you put in the work for decades. Maybe you've raised a family who is now out on their own, or maybe you've just met a dead end. You checked all the boxes of shoulds in your life, and here you are asking, what's my purpose now? Our latest podcast guests, Jerry and Ruth Cohen, are here to answer that very question. As host of the Evolving Elders Workshop Series, the Cohens are consummate professionals at helping folks find meaning and purpose as life rolls on. I'll be drinking High West American Prairie bourbon. What about you? Today, I'd like to welcome Ruth and Jerry Cohen, who are part of Evolving Elders as my guest today. And so the first question I usually ask is, what generation are you in, Ruth and Jerry? So we are the baby boom generation. Mission. But when you think about that, the baby boom generation spans 18 years. The differences between people born in 1946 and people born in 1964 are pretty significant. I'll just build on that. I often ask folks, how many of you were born when Franklin Roosevelt was president? And remember that. How many were you born uh, and remember when President Kennedy was assassinated? And it's eerie when maybe two people raised their hand in the room if I'm doing a workshop for university now. The reality is that my experience as a kid who was born in 1952 is very different than someone born, let's say, 1960 or 61, back to memory right. and those chords and things that kind of hold together. So the caveat with baby boomer is, well, that's a big boom. <laughs> right. So the differences that you see in the 18-year span, uh, what are maybe some of the differences you see with people born in the 1960s versus the ones born in 19, was it 47, I believe? Some of the research I've seen is that, and again, not to stereotype, but back to kind of uh, experientially, in terms of uh, politics, as an example, those born mm-hmm. perhaps from 46 to maybe 1958 tend to be more on the or label liberal progressive side when it comes to both policy and economics. Whereas those uh, that are born afterwards, I, I always thought of Alex Keaton. Uh, <laughs> family ties. Family ties. Is, family there, ties. there is a shift. And part of it is, again, you know, coming of age at a time when Suddenly now the we've gone through Watergate and other things. So a, a lot of it is back to key timing things that happen in terms of each cohorts. Uh, and I think that's a major right. difference right there. Well, I did a series on generations. So I talked to boomers. I've talked to the X generation, the millennials and a Z. And it's been kind of interesting to see how the span of those individuals, their thoughts and things that are happening, but they're totally different. And uh, I appreciate that fact. And I think now we'll see a little more, hopefully, uh, individuals being aware of older individuals and evolving elders. What is your personal philosophy on aging? Do you have one? (laughs) For mine, it it starts with purpose. Um, You know, Viktor Frankl is a human. We all need purpose. And a key component in my mind of of purpose is is, is engagement social engagement, other ways of engagement, but being engaged in something purposeful makes a world of difference as we age and is the most successful social determinant or social determinant of what makes for successful age. I like a quote that 
Susan Suckle Blosser came up with that we heard recently, and that is do not regret growing older. It is an honor that is denied to many. Right. And when you think about uh, the horrible, unfortunate tragedies that are unfolding, there are generations of people who will never have the honor of growing older. So I agree. I mean, Jerry and I wouldn't be doing Evolving Elders if we didn't have an agreement on finding meaning and purpose as life goes on. But it's also to remember that it's we are honored to be at the age that we are. And, and I think that one of the things that I found very impressive about Evolving Elders was some of your workshops that you did specifically on trying to find your, your purpose, maybe your passion. So could you talk a little bit about those type of things and what you discuss in those seminars and workshops? So I think our flagship workshop that we've developed is called Standing at the Crossroads. And we initially yes. developed it for kind of in parallel to our own lives um, at a time when Jerry was getting ready to, quote, retire. I've been self-employed for so long that I've, I've worked and retired and worked and retired. I keep reinventing myself. But the point being that when people are stepping out of something that's incredibly familiar, sometimes they're not quite sure which way to go or what to do. They don't, they, they maybe have never had an opportunity to develop some of their outside interests. So we had initially focused it on people who were getting ready to leave their career job or people that mm-hmm. had just recently left and were kind of floundering. But what we're working on now is developing that for um, people who are in their 40s or a little bit younger. These are the people now that have, they're well-established in their careers and kind of are stuck with a number of the people that we've talked to have said, I'm, I've been working long enough. I've come, I've moved my way up the ranks I've gone about as far as I can go. I'm getting a little bored, but I'm so secure financially and with insurance and everything else. I don't know that I can leave. Right. And so we're we're working on developing it uh, more for people who are also at that point in their in their careers of what's what's next. I know that there's a bigger world, and so, but I'm not quite sure how to go out there and get it. Right. And so it's going back to Jerry's comment about finding purpose mm-hmm. and you can find purpose at any age. And so I really appreciate you taking that message to younger individuals. That's great. Part of the, that crossroads, when, what type, when you talk to them about how they find purpose, how is that kind of explained to those individuals within the workshop? How do we explain how they find purpose? Part of it is is starting with self-reflection and looking back on what gave you meaning or in the case of of dealing with transition and change, going back as to, well, what worked and frankly, what didn't work and not to beat yourself up, but rather to flag, you know, this approach that I took, I really suffered for a while because of it. And but obviously somehow I came through. So it's reflecting back. Building on that, and we have some exercises we have, we have tested out and found are useful then in starting to reflect forward as to, hmm, 
let me play with and do some brainstorming of what are some things that I could be doing. I think the most important thing that we emphasize is that, well, two things. One, one size does not fit all. There's no cookie cutter right. answer to um, what I do next. Most importantly, you can change gears, you can change and shift gears and change direction. So I know that as I stepped away from my career job, that I went into doing several things after taking some respite, some time off for me, that mm -hmm. looked at, oh, maybe I'd like to try this. And you know what? It didn't, didn't, didn't seem to bring me the joy <laughs> or purpose. Therefore, I'm going to try something else. So it's coming up with a right. menu, plan A, plan B, plan C, and that's okay. Yeah. And I think it's also about, being open to opportunities, as Jerry was right. saying, that, that I know for myself, when someone asks me to be involved in something, not immediately saying yes, not immediately saying no, doing some research, talking to people who may already also be involved in it, and finding out whether it's something that I personally want to be involved in, or is it something I believe in this organization and the work that they're doing, but I don't want to support it with my time, so how else could I find a way to support it? whether it's making a donation or something like that. Sure. Is, is there any studies or any data on if a person's transition is planned for retirement versus one that, that is it's brought on by the company or by the firm? Is that handled different in the transition process? You think? I, I, having worked for AARP a number of years, I know indeed that to the extent that you can plan ahead, and in their various aspects of planning, it's kind of Maslow's hierarchy of need. Yes, I look at financial planning and where I would be and can I afford, what do I need to, to do to get to attain that, that level of security? What about my health and how am I going to care for myself? And then build on to, of course, the, the key elements of purpose, et cetera. So all that requires some planning ahead and not to be afraid of reaching out for help you know, getting the resources. Right. And as part of what we do in Evolving Elders is I do a workshop that gets to advanced planning and, and whether it's career right. change or whether it's retirement, doesn't matter. It's what are the elements of what you have to anticipate best, best you can anticipate. There are so many times when people don't have any control. Right. That And that to me is one of the big differences is whether you're planning to leave that employer or whether the employer decides that you're leaving. So right. the pre-planning that Jerry was just talking about actually is good in both situations. One that, okay, I, I plan to uh, leave my position in six months and here's what I need to do to get ready for that. And then the other side is just doing the pre-planning in general because you never know when life can throw you a major curveball in terms of where you have to make a change suddenly. Now, as part of the transition process, if I know a lot of people where the career is their themselves, it's the essence of themselves. How does one approach when that is the situation on trying to figure out what your purpose and transition is since that had been your entire life? So when I came up with the concept of evolving elders back in 2018, I was walking along Agate Beach and just 
thinking deep ocean thoughts. And what came to me was the line of who are you now that you're not what you were? Because our society defines so much a person's identity and worth based on the job that they do. How many times have we all walked into social situations and you're maybe don't know anybody? And the question that comes up pretty immediately is, well, what do you do? Right. Well, (laughs) it's it. So that's how we tend to, in our Western culture, define people. And so a lot of the work that we do in helping people find, continue to find meaning and purpose in life is helping them step out of that idea that they're only who they are based on their job, that we're all much more whole than that. There's so much more to us than just our job. And and in doing that, uh, Gary, uh, often some of the exercises we do really revolves around what brings you joy or what has brought you joy. And also the the flip side of what do you aspire to be? What do you aspire to do? Mm -hmm. And that takes more pondering. Uh, But often, again, it's built off a reflection. Right. And I liked Ruth's comment about reinventing oneself as you come through this process. But that brings to mind Madonna, who's in her 60s. And I look back at her career and she's reinvented herself several times. So it's possible to do that. So I appreciate that. What do you think successful aging looks like in the U.S. today? So in my professional career, I was a longtime geriatric care manager. So I met right. elders in a wide variety of situations over the years. And I could have two people who, when you look at them, pretty similar circumstances. They both may have physical challenges. Their, their socioeconomic status may be the same. Their living situations may be the same. And one person greets the world every day with joy and gratitude. Mm-hmm. And the other one doesn't, which right. caused me years ago to start reflecting on what what's the difference and how are people, what, what makes for people who are challenging, we're all challenged somehow. And so what, what gets people through it and still engaged in life? And why do some people give up? I, I, right. I, and I'll just add that, you know, I've, I've done a lot of international travel, which has given me broader perspectives of cultures mm-hmm. and the aging. I have a problem sometimes saying successful aging per se, that word successful, because I don't know, that's subjective. But I do think right. that back to purpose, meaning legacy, um, that there's something intrinsic in value. And that means that I'm looking at the glass half full and not half empty. Now that's that's hard. There are right. persons wired that are I mean, by nature, sad, cynical, right. et cetera. But I think that to 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 embrace the longevity bonus that we're given as we age compared to our parents and grandparents means that there's something more that we can embrace of being of value and noting, I still in some little way can meaningfully contribute to the world. It may be because of my physical and cognitive limitations. It's just interacting with one other person. And making their day right. better, that's, that may be good enough. Right. I like the term legacy, and I hadn't really thought it in that context, Jerry. 
so can you ex- expand on that a little bit? What what do you mean by legacy? Uh, well, I, first of all, I, I like to steal from uh, our friend uh, Jay Bloom, uh, who talks about <laughs> yes, <Jay. laughs> returnment rather than retirement. The, um, exactly, and it's part of it. Exactly. But, but to me, legacy is leaving the world a little better off individuals a little better off in some manner than what I left it. Um, and that's right. touching the soul of another person. And I know you particularly right. reading uh, your, your five persons. There, there's a lot of good books that talk about what we leave ourselves, but also what we gain by giving to others and not necessarily in, in identifiable, tangible ways. I think the best example I can give from, from certainly from the past couple of years. So I was one of those people that masked up and went to the grocery store. I didn't want somebody else picking out my groceries. I wanted to go to the grocery store. Right. And so I would mask up. I would glove up in the early days. And when I went to the checkout line, I made a conscious effort to greet that checker Eyeball to eyeball, face to face, and acknowledge that they were there for my benefit. And I can't tell you the number of times where they would look at me back and say, thank you. Because just acknowledging someone as a human being and not just as a robot there, you know, scanning your groceries or whatever. It, it means it means a lot. That's a legacy. To me, it's kind of the butterfly effect. So if I'm nice mm-hmm. to a person, maybe the ripple effect is they're going to be nice to somebody who's going to be nice to somebody. And that, to me, is how each of us can have a positive impact. Absolutely. And I think that's a great illustration of having an impact, even a small one that we can all do with individuals. Jay Bloom was my first guest uh, on the podcast, and so it, it was great to interact with him and his knowledge and wisdom. So I'm plugging the first episode uh, for our listeners out there that know Jay. Jerry, you said you travel around the world and you've seen some different models of aging, I guess is the right term for that. So what are some of the positive things out of those models that you've seen in other countries that we might want to look at in the U.S.? Well, I, a couple of places uh, that I've been where I'm just in awe of, first of all, the veneration and respect uh, that mm-hmm. younger generations give to older generations and engagement related to that is that it's very intergenerational. There's no segregation. If mm-hmm. anything, it's multi-generational uh, uh, engagement, support of each other. Um, so two places in particular in Vietnam, I still recall uh, getting up early in the morning and there was a park across from the bed and breakfast I stayed at. And there were all different generations doing various exercises. You name it from Tai Chi to the you know machines that you have in parks now for fitness. And they were all interacting together. In, in um, uh, Turkey, where we were at, again, it seemed like the old men were playing uh, backgammon in a corner. But all the kids were gathered around and they were all learning and they were explaining, the older persons were explaining how the game was played. So those are the sorts of things that I, I think, uh, irrespective of the physical plant and, you know, we think of nursing home care and all that. It's, it's that level of care and respect uh, that 
I think makes truly a, a, a cultural difference in terms of both legacy and, and purpose. I attended a conference in the Netherlands and I saw a very dramatic difference between the U.S. and how they treat their elders. And I think the intergenerational is very important yeah. uh, as well. But one of the things I noticed is they strive to have health care and care come into the home and it's paid for out of a tax by the government. And so the person stays in their home and you have people that get insurance and benefits and all that taking care of it. It was a very pointed moment for me to see that and it worked well. The other thing I, I think I realized is they use innovation in equipment. So I, this has been 15 years ago. On a wheelchair, they had it where you would use your hands like this instead of doing the wheel thing. I have yeah. yet to see one of those in the U.S., but it was I think it's a great idea. I loved it. So I, I think you're absolutely correct that other generations, intergenerational is a key maybe in other countries I, for that. I, I will add on the wheelchair issue, you have I still volunteer with AARP and we do a program called Neighbor Walks that does the various neighborhoods, the volunteers organize it. The one we just did a, a week and a half ago in Tigard there was a gentleman with a walker that had arm holders that was just perfect. He said, I can lean forward. And, you know, I asked where to right. get it. He said, I got it at Costco. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we're slowly getting there in terms of figuring out yeah. the type of technology that gives dignity to an individual, independence, sure. and allows for the engagement. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that we that you guys may be in, in involving elders is the independence part of that. So is that part of, of evolving elders and how does that play out for individuals? Well, I think in both of our in both of our careers, Jerry, from the um, policy and advocacy uh, perspective right. and me from from the more direct clinical work, I think both of us individually respecting the dignity of the person has been that's like pretty much the cornerstone of both of our interactions with with elders and and families because that's how I want to be treated. There, right. there is one flip side that I would emphasize uh, prior to my working in aging or it is an interregnum, I guess, in between careers was a career working in the field of developmental disabilities and physical disabilities in a university yeah. setting. And the coin, the phrase that was used, and I believe we as elders need to grab onto as well as interdependence. It means that I'm not afraid of and willing, being willing to accept the help of others, knowing my limitations. So that's the right. flip side of not only being fiercely independent, but fiercely interdependent and knowing that there are some things that for good purposes to allow me to continue to engage, I will need help on. And being willing to accept right. that with humility and, and recognition that that's helping another person on their purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll give a little example. My 92-year-old mother wonder mattress changed the other day. So she's in there trying to do it with me. And I went, no. No, you need to, you need to just let a, let me do this. And so yeah. that's it. But boy, that independent streak came through and she said, yeah, I can do this. And I said, well, you might, but I'm going to do it for you. So I think that's pretty, pretty cool on the independent spirit. But again, uh, the interdependency is a very, very important. And do you think the older baby boomers might have a little more 
problem with asking for help versus maybe another generation? <laughs> well, I certainly can speak of those that before the baby boom, certainly in terms of our parents, that, yeah. that, that, that proud street and also the sense, and I think it carries through a boomers too, not only is it fiercely independent, but also um, I don't want to be a burden. Right. And so that's the, the other part of it, I think, is that we, we tend to discount help because we feel that we're becoming a burden on others. And that's frowned upon in our society as well. It's like nobody wants to be a burden. Yeah, absolutely. You, Evolving Elders, works with individuals and families, and you do assessments and make recommendations. So explain to me a little bit about what the assessment would look like, because I know it covers several different aspects and of a, the person. So how does that look like? What does an assessment look like? So this stems from my 40 plus years of working as a geriatric care manager. Right. And families and, and elders sometimes are just stuck in that they mm -hmm. know that um, some changes need to happen, but they're not quite sure what supports are out there, what's really needed, how do they go about getting it, how is it going to be paid for, and it can range anywhere from, you know, the elder saying, I really want to stay in my home, okay, but maybe physical limitations if the person's in an older Portland home with steep staircase and there's mobility issues, so maybe we can't redesign the house. We can't move a bedroom to the first floor, or uh, maybe there isn't even a bathroom on the first floor. So right. sometimes it's just helping to identify what the concerns are and then coming up with a plan of how to put that all, how to make all that happen. Attorneys, financial planners are also, as professionals, oftentimes asked to come up with those solutions. And so it's not unusual that I will get a call from one of them, from another professional saying, this is, Ruth, this is more your bailiwick. Can you come talk to this family? The assessments include things I'm looking at. I kind of, I kind of, what I do is I put the elder in the middle. Okay. And then what are all the uh, supports that are available? You know, family, friends, medical, spiritual, financial, and how do we make the, the concerns, the challenges that the elder is, is faced with, how can we utilize all of the support systems to come up with a plan to support that person? And sometimes and the person can stay at home and sometimes they have to relocate. And how do you get the, the person to buy into the, the assessment <laughs> and the plan? How do you get the, the family or the elder? <laughs> the elder. How do you get the elder to buy into the plan? Um, Some tips on that. You know, it's it's relationship building. Um, uh -huh. It also depends on how someone like me is introduced. Is it right? You shall talk to this person. You shall talk to Ruth uh -huh. Cohen or, huh, you know, mom, we've been talking about these things for a while. And I now know, you know, I know of someone who can come in and help us sort through it all. So. I can pretty much guarantee that having it as a dogmatic, um, mm -hmm. going, it's going to happen, that often creates some barriers. 
to right. my conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. In, in my past experience, Ruth, working with case, geriatric case managers and those is they have a good sense of knowing how to navigate those discussions if given the right format to do that. But also they're a neutral third party. And usually the elder will listen more to a third party than they will the family members. Do you find that to be correct as well? It's not unusual, but usually because there's so much emotional stuff that happens between parents and children. You know, the parent remembers when this child was born. So, and then you get into sibling dynamics. You wanted to say something. Right, right. Yeah, I, I, of course... Ruth is uh, the reality-based, on-the-ground type of assessment. I'm Mr. Kind of right. Macro Public Policy, but one project I've been involved in in years as an attorney, and I have to be careful because I'm not licensed in Oregon. I don't practice law in Oregon. But what I've done is for groups, for the most part, but also individuals, kind of review, Do you, are you aware of these various planning tools, many of which are here resources that are available for you, including care management? Have you looked at all Mm -hmm. these things? Have you had a discussion to start these things, particularly when it comes to a healthcare representative of advanced directives? So those are all Mm -hmm. things that we try to cover back to pre-planning, but in the midst of crisis, boy, then it's very difficult. You know, then it's like, well, Maybe I cannot even do uh, an advanced directive because the elder is just not lacks capacity, incompetent. In other right. And, and I tend to find that people get into more crises than they do pre-planning. Yeah. So you're usually brought in after the fact. But I think it's really good to have an assessment tool to know where the baseline is for mm-hmm. individuals and how to work with them. So. The process can be very overwhelming, I'm sure, for the elder as well as the family. So how do you approach a discussion with a family member about after the assessment, Ruth, when outlining what they are, what needs to your plan for how things need to work or change or that sort of thing? So how do you how do you bring that talk to them about the report and the assessment? Well, my own my own um, style, I guess or my Mm -hmm. own process, the first meeting of the elder and the family typically is only about an hour and a half because after an hour and a half, people get tired. Yeah, absolutely. And so gathering what information I can during that, typically it's enough that I can come up with a plan of recommendations and suggestions, pros and cons, you know, the, the, the challenges and the opportunities. And so Sometimes I have to have a second interview before I can get to that point. But mm-hmm. once I get to that point in the recommendation section is typically resources. We may, the family and I may have had the discussion about the family wants to be fully involved, but who's going to do what, mm-hmm. uh, right. particularly in those situations where there's a family member who lives close by to the elder and another sibling lives at a distance, how can that person still be actively engaged? And then we are, we have a wealth of community resources here in in the Portland metropolitan area, certainly. And then the internet can be a positive resource, not always, but helping right. guide, giving those resources that that I have found to be very reputable. 
in terms of gathering right. information. So it, uh, again, it's not a cookie cutter. Everybody, every assessment I have done, every recommendation report is different because right. the elder and the families are all individuals and circumstances. It's are different. exactly the same with, with my clients is there's no cookie cutter. It is a case by case basis. Something might have worked that you've done with another case or another client, but necessarily won't work in this situation unless it's tweaked a little bit. So I think that's very important to understand. I tend to have a challenge with uh, discharge planners in hospitals trying to, f- to get them to tweak these things around in order to make them work. Uh, so I think that having a geriatric case manager yourself is probably the key to being successful in these outcomes. Well, in fairness, yeah, in fairness to discharge planners, they don't have the same opportunities. They don't get to see the person's living situation. They don't get the opportunity to look at who else is involved. So I did not want their jobs. They, they really work very hard. They do. And, um, to doing that one in, in the current, uh, hospital environment is very challenging because they're re- they're wanting them discharged immediately and trying to find the right placement might be an issue for everybody. So that's very true. One of the things that I really liked was all the workshops and seminars that you guys have done. And so uh, we talked about the transition one. And I, I think I said to you in my little email to you that sign me up. Uh, I'm ready to take that one. <laughs> what are some of the scary. other ones? That, oh, good, good, good. I'm so excited about that. But I think part of the other ones that I saw was um, how do your passion and purpose is one of them standing at the crossroads. And then you had some geared strictly for women, Ruth. So, so can you talk a little bit about how those became about and what what is the mission of those workshops? So I actually started doing workshops probably. Well, I always have to count backwards and minus the last two years. So about five years ago, I actually started doing workshops specifically for women. And um, the the precursor to standing at the crossroads was one of them. I forget now what I what I called it. Maybe I did call it that. Anyway, I came back and you know was telling Jerry about how it works, and he goes, "Well, aren't you ever going to do it for men?" So that's okay. Yeah. But but working with women, particularly women who are just to define maybe over the age of 50 is it all encompasses everything that we've talked about. It's about how do you continue to find, how do you remain relevant and how do you embrace the idea of being an older woman and the power and the wisdom and how can you find ways to, to use that in, in previous Old, old times. Older women were known as crones. And I always have to spell it C-R-O-N-E-S because I have to train my computer that it does not mean Crohn's disease. But crones were the wise old women. They they had a lot of power. And ultimately, they were the ones that were also burned for being witches. But crones were the wise women. And it's helping women understand that as they get older, they still have an incredible amount of uh, gifts to give in terms of right. wisdom and support to others. So that's the workshops um, were, were more focused on that 
And that was kind of where I got started. And then we moved it into elders as a whole. And, and one other aspect that we did do when it came to caregiving was that more often than not, mm-hmm. although the data shows that more and more men are becoming caregivers, not just caretaker or, you know, caregivees, I guess you would call it. Um, yeah. But that is that, again, women have sacrificed a lot in terms of the workplace. Um, and we're seeing with the mm-hmm. pandemic across ages, more often than not, women are having to be at home for the kids, can't get back to work, and then maybe caregiving now for mom and dad or grandpa or grandpa. So, you know, again, right. that other aspect, we've kind of morphed or evolved it into a broader array. But we do workshops on caregiving and resilience and caring for yourself. And that, I have to confess, are usually 90% or more women that attempt. Well, that's an interesting observation and one that I think is very important. And Ruth, I think it's great that you're doing the workshops on women and showing how they can become wiser, wiser in age and give that knowledge away to others. Appreciate that. Is there any other type of thing or anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, Well, again, I go back to what we started with, which is meaningful purpose um, and and engagement. I I will say that that uh, uh, to me um, that ties into your question earlier about legacy. But I also I I also think about in the here and now when I'm dealing in a time of change and anxiety, the word right. resilience we actually have used beyond resilience in caregiving, and that is. In any type of transition from A to what may become B, but I'm not there yet, and maybe it doesn't get to B, it goes over to C instead, is how do I care for myself? What are some of the right. tools and strategies that can help me while I'm in the wilderness? And so that's something we do as well. And I realized we hadn't plugged it, but it's something that we started to do as the pandemic started, and we've just gotten back to as well. Thank you for sharing that, Jerry. I think that's a future workshop for you guys on that. Ruth, do you have anything you would like to share? So Jerry was just talking about about resilience and certainly a lot of the work that we share and the information that we share with other people, a lot of it's based on ourselves, what we've gone through, Mm -hmm. what we've experienced, the number of people in our lives that we've watched and we've been part of their lives and we've either been recipients of their knowledge and wisdom or we've been able to share ours with them so it's not like we're it's not like that we're the the magic gurus of all of this we're just two people who this is our purpose now as we have reached this point in our lives is to open conversations to share what we know and to learn from each other. Absolutely. Well, I would like to thank you uh, both, Jerry and Ruth, for being guests on my podcast. Truly amazing conversation, and thank you so much. Well, thank you, Gary. Thank you, Gary, and I'm looking for that glass of bourbon over there and enjoy it. (laughs) I am, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to Bourbon with Beagle, presented by me, Gary Beagle. 
be sure to subscribe to Bourbon with Beagle on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you are listening now. I would like to thank my producer, Dan Bruton of SignalCast and my digital media and marketing specialist, Aaron Haley. Without them, Bourbon with Beagle would not be possible.